Welcome back to Speaking to Stacy, a podcast sharing practical advice for an action-driven lifestyle. My name is Stacy Liddell, and I'm really excited to be able to share this conversation with you today. Before I introduce my guest, I want to say a big thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen in and learn something new. This week, my guest is Martin Muller. Martin is a retired professional rugby player. He has had stints with the Stormers, the Cheetahs, and the Lions. Stay with us to the end to find out how sports can prepare you mentally and physically for other obstacles you encounter in life. I believe this episode will shine light on the benefits that sport can provide you regardless of the level you achieve. This conversation can provide you with many insights and benefits. Three key highlights that spring to mind are 1. Why it's really stressful to be a professional sports person. 2. What it takes to complete the Talisca Atlantic Rowing Challenge. And three, how to implement the power of marginal gains, not only in sport, but in life as well. And so without any further ado, let's get into the show. All right, so I've got Martin Muller on the podcast with me today. And as always, Martin, I'm going to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself so you can let the viewers and the listeners know uh, a little bit of your background and then we can jump in from there. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I'm, I, I grew up in Cape Town, um, went to Bishops with Stacey, so we, we knew each other from school. After after finishing up matric, uh, I sort of got into professional rugby, played that for about 10 years through my 20s. So the teams I played for there was um, sort of Western Province Stormers, Griquas, Cheetahs, and then finished up at the Lions. After sort of a fair few injuries, decided to move over to Hong Kong, which is where I'm now. Um, essentially as a way to sort of like transition away from full-time rugby and into sort of corporate life. And yeah, that's what I've been doing for six years. So now I work for a, um, a macro research company. We sell, we sell sort of investments, investment research to, to banks and hedge funds and that sort of thing. Still play a little bit of rugby. Uh, still still playing uh, for my team here, uh, Valley, Valley RFC. Doing, doing my final season this year, having taken a... A uh, year-long break last year, um, where me and me and two of my mates we we rode. We did a 37-day unsupported row across the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it from me. Wow. Okay. Um, I guess we can start off with the beginning of your your journey in sport, and I like to ask my guests uh, why they got into sport or what inspired them to get into sport? Was it an individual that inspired you? Was it mom and dad that got you interested in sport? Uh, so what led you into professional sports? Yeah, uh, <laughs> we were just laughing about it off air now, but obviously as being a South African, the arts is often, often pretty similar. We, um, from, a, from a young age, from sort of the age of five or six, um, first picked up my first rugby ball. And sort of just loved it ever since. Uh, played right, right through junior school, right through high school. Funnily enough, when I, when you know, getting to the end of my high school career, I wasn't really that all hopped up on on pursuing rugby as a profession. What happened from there was I I made Craven Week in my final year at school, which sort of it it, it tends to be a little bit of a snowball effect in South African rugby in that you you know you get into a team which then sort of springboards you into another team. So what happened from there was then I joined the Western Province Academy, ended up making um, SA schools and then met, making um, SA under 19 and under 20. And you know, by then, by then you're sort of fully, fully integrated into the system. Yeah, so then I'm playing a fair bit of Curry Cup and Super Rugby. But going back to your question, like it, it wasn't, it wasn't so much that this was my be all and end all and something I I wanted to do throughout my teens i think in many ways um it sort of it, it became it became my job as 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 time went on as i sort of made made various representative teams etc okay so it wasn't initially a conscious decision it kind of just came about as a consequence of a few circumstances that sort of fell your way yeah i think i think that's probably a fair comment it's you know, it's it, it's an opportunity. So you know, you get selected for the SN20 team. No, no, no one's going to really say no. And then the Stormers are like, okay, cool, we're going to give you a junior contract again. You're never going to say no. I want to go study 
finance and UCT. <laughs> of course, you're going to take the opportunity. And don't get me wrong, sure. it, was, it was a fantastic opportunity and it afforded me a, a, a lot of very, very cool experiences. But yeah, as I said, probably wasn't my uh, sort of be-all and end-all at that age. You briefly touched on rugby becoming a job. Um, I spoke to a mate of mine about the sort of difference when rugby transitions from or sport in general transitions from something you do at high school that you love and you're passionate about and then it he he got to a point where it transitioned into a job and it was very stressful because he was actually on the coaching side um in the states and he said it, it took away from the passion that he had for the game and he completely by the end of his coaching career he only coached I think for three or so years um, by the end of that time coaching he had completely fallen out of love with the game um, he's now back in it, helping out at the local side. I think doing something quite similar to what you're doing. Plays a little bit, but predominantly coaches. Mm. And he's found his passion and is absolutely loving it um, with all the pressure removed. Is that something that you ever experienced? I think I know who you're talking about. He was my, he was my housemate at the Western Province Academy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, to be honest, a very, very similar, similar story, actually. Um, loved, loved rugby throughout my teens um, during during high school. St- starting off, I would say it was a bit of a challenge. It was a bit of a bit of a culture shock, you know, coming from sort of fairly sheltered bishop's life into sort of the throes of rugby where you've got it's very multicultural and you, you, you're meeting a lot of new people. But I did I did very much learn to to enjoy it and it was you know, a fantastic way to earn a earn a salary. That said, I'd say towards the end, especially with injuries, um, to to your previous point, was that it did, it did become fairly stressful. I really just signed sort of one or two year contracts at a time, and then you you know you get an injury and you start questioning. All right, you know my peer group now are getting into their late twenties. They they've now got uh, three or four years of work experience, and I am essentially tailing off as far as my career goes. I've sort of maxed out my my earnings. You know, in your late twenties, that tends to be what happens in rugby. Your late twenties, early thirties, that's where you max out your earnings. And then it starts tailing off. So you you start questioning, right? Is this is this what I should be doing, or is now the writing on the wall? And that that I mean that's sort of what led me to the decision to to move away from the full time stuff. I probably I came to Hong Kong. I would say probably with the idea of playing for one or two more years because I wasn't I wasn't really loving rugby at the time. Um, it essentially used as a vehicle to get over here because you know as you know, as you well know the South African passport is not the strongest thing around. So. <laughs> So um, just being able to use that as a springboard to get over here, get your visa through that. But yeah, now it's, what, six years later, and I'm playing again, and I'm probably loving it, again, to your previous point, I'm probably loving it more now than I ever have, even though this is probably one of my final year. Just, that's more just sort of for self-preservation reasons. But yeah, it's, it's really interesting how you, you know, once it does become a job, it's just, it's it's not as enjoyable. And getting over here now and, and doing it as a, as a pastime is actually... Yeah, it's great. It's very interesting. Like I cut my rugby career short at university was because of an ACL injury. Um, mm-hmm. I just, I think, a couple of reasons. Like it was a balance of is it worth it? Because I was only playing sort of under twenty B side at the time, mm-hmm. and you know, I I didn't really see myself making it as a rugby player. So I was weighing up: is it worth potentially re-injuring the knee and then having to deal with long-term consequences of injuries? And also then I I was lucky that I was at university, so I always had the fallback option of really focusing on studies and, and continuing with my university career there. I think it's just really interesting that you talk about injuries as well. Um, and I spoke to Nick Costa about this, and his career was literally completely destroyed by injury. I didn't realize the extent of injuries that he had. Um, he, was, he talked about basically being strapped up, injected, and everything before every yeah. single like practice session, not even game day. Yeah, I mean, I think the Nick thing with Nick was that he was he, he was kind of like the next big thing, you know. And it's, yeah. um, <laughs> I mean, he, he probably doesn't want to hear me saying this because it's probably not a nice thing to hear, but he was. I mean, he was essentially sort of seen as the next big thing, and then yeah, yeah I got absolutely destroyed by injuries. It's, yeah, yeah, so huge pity. Yeah, shame. It. Yeah, it's uh, the most interesting thing about his career is. We, and we spoke about it, so he won't mind me saying so. He just, he doesn't regard himself or his rugby career as 
in any way like success because of just his expectations and sort of mm-hmm. what he wanted to achieve in the game. And it's just interesting how, you know, from the outside in, a lot of people would look at what he achieved uh, to be, you know, quite quite a, a moderate level of success. You know, he got mm-hmm. to a certain level and just unfortunately injury cut his career short. Do you maybe want to just chat a bit about sort of the South African setup um, in terms of the reason why I want to talk about this is one of my other guests, Kyle Brown, he mm-hmm. talked about sort of the South African setup is quite ruthless um, in that you, well, he felt that it was, you're always potentially replaceable because of the high volume of rugby players in the country. Um, did you ever feel like that was a concern for you or or did you not really notice it while you were playing? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I was also in quite a fortunate position where the position that I played as in a lock, um, second row, is that we tend to be kind of in high demand. So despite, you know, a few years of missing, a f- missing quite a few months of injuries, I was still sort of fairly easily able to get a, a new contract each time. But yes, I think that's, that is very, very much a, a thing that does happen, especially in Carl's position as a, as a, as a back row, as a flank. Um, we've just got so many of them. I mean, yeah. it's you know it works for South African rugby. It's actually, you know, it 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 pushes performance. It drives performance. It's it's maybe not not so nice for you know the p- people getting replaced. But if you look at sort of more broadly, as far as South African performances go and the sort of play, play, players we produce, it's um, it definitely has a positive effect on performance. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I guess you got to sometimes take the good with the bad. Mm-hmm. Um, Another interesting thing that that uh, sort of rung a bell in my head was you mentioning the the max salary that you sort of reach in your late twenties, and I think that's another thing that plays into it because he mentioned obviously the younger guys coming through, especially in the sevens game um, where there's a specific skill set that's required, especially like speed and skill and those kinds of things. You can obviously someone who's twenty eight, who's now sort of competing against a new twenty twenty one year old guy. You can also offer him less money. So there's also that factor as well, which is it's quite hectic. Like I just thought I never I'd never you don't really know these insights and perspectives unless you speak to people in the game. I just thought it was like fascinating was, that sorry, just to clear up there, was he saying that the older people get offered less money or the younger people? No, the, so you as an older guy, you're competing against a younger guy who's yeah. as good as you, but yeah. because he can be offered less money. Yeah, he's also, yeah, okay, he's yeah. also a good financial proposition as well as a like a good rugby player. So it's it's not just the, about the rugby. There's also the sort of balancing the book side of things. Mm, yeah, I mean that's it makes tons of sense. And you, it's it's not just that you know you see it in the corporate world. You see the guys, you know they they sort of perform an op, a, a role in their job and they get bumped salary year after year and eventually they get too expensive for the company to keep them on because they you know they can hire someone who's who's 10 years younger who he'll do it for you know three quarters of the salary it's 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 sort of a general trend but yeah i think it's more pronounced in rugby just because our careers are so so much shorter yeah yeah that's true and then uh, how about we talk a little bit about some of your experiences as a rugby player um like massive highlights of your career and some maybe some of the low points you can discuss? Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, yeah, the highlights I would say were, you know, things like playing in the Curry Cup final. Um, I was fortunate enough to make uh, make junior books um, was that back in 2008 or something now. And then, um, again, was lucky enough, lucky enough in my, essentially my final experience of professional rugby was um, to go on a Barbarians tour. And that was, we played um, the Springboks at Wembley. Uh, we played Czech Republic in Prague, which is loads of fun. And then uh, and then Fiji in Belfast. So, you know, the, as a way to sort of end up a career, I couldn't have really asked for much more. Those are, yeah, so, I mean, those, those are sort of the positives. The negatives, um, look, it's, I, I think it's sort of would be true for most players, but it's whenever you get injured. It's just, you know... Okay. You're being paid to to do something, and when you're unable to do it, it's just not enjoyable. And it also brings other things into account, obviously, because you you start questioning, right? Is this is this what I should be doing? Am I going to get recontracted at the end of this? Yeah, I would I'd certainly say that the the injuries were probably the 
less memorable. Not not as enjoyable as the as the other stuff. Did you have quite a injury riddled career? Was it was it big injuries or was it just small niggly things? Uh, what was your injury record like? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't great to be honest. Uh, so my final six years of my career, I did the maths on it afterwards, and essentially I was injured total months was for three of them. So uh, I'm yeah, sorry for total months was injured for three of those years. If you if you um okay so yeah so you know it was a wow it was a long it was a long slog and and they, and and it wasn't really great leading up to that either not not a good sport for your body um i just want to <laughs> <Very good>. <laughs> <laughs> no it's not um you see like i often uh my dad he's now 63 and he had knee injuries from rugby mm. also back in the day um and those are the days where you didn't have like obviously high tech surgeries and things like that. So like they basically yeah. like butchered your body when they went in for a knee up. And he yeah, his knee his right knee is I think it's his right knee is completely buggered. It's now like chronic pain, but he kind of just he manages it. Um and you just see that with so many older South African guys who obviously had decent mm. rugby careers, even just playing for like the local club or whatever, um, but at like a senior level, obviously with the con- with the contact is big and things like that. And yeah, a lot of the guys are struggling. Um, yeah. knees and backs and hands and things like that yeah i mean that's 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 a bit of a, that's an old story when it comes to rugby i guess you meet you meet some old cropped old guy who's you know played played 20 years of club rugby and he can and he can barely walk and he's got arthritis everywhere <laughs> yeah yeah it reminds you of like mm. basil bay and like basil's <laughs> hands used to be like his hands were just look, didn't look like yeah. human hands well great great legend of the sport I was I was interested to actually talk about your barbarians experience because I did see it online. Maybe could you talk to or speak to how does one go about like getting selected for the barbarians? Is it do you put your name forward or is it management and the coaching setup that comes and recruits people? How does that whole setup work? Yeah, so our games that year for the barbars were um, pretty much I think all of them fell underneath under the international window. So they didn't really have any international players to select from. So they sort of selected, I guess, from sort of the second tier of guys, which would have all been sort of like super rugby, super rugby players. And yeah, they were they were just looking for a lock. My agent was um, my agent had his ear to the ground, I guess, and uh, and he, yeah, he sent me a message and said, "Would you be keen?" I was like, "Yeah, for sure. It'd be amazing." Yeah, I think I I, I mean I don't want to. It's not like I was you know it was the cream of the crop as far as barbarians teams go but it was you know everyone playing super rugby we had a few few pretty good internationals in there but it's the the selection was essentially them them go, going around shopping for sort of super rugby players to to fill the gaps was there anyone significant in the coaching setup that that looked after you guys when you were playing uh yeah robbie deans was the head coach and um i think will greenwood was uh assistant yeah, I mean, it was it was sort of the your classic coaching staff. We had, you know, we had all the. Okay, that's um, epic! Wow, and I think obviously a great opportunity to mix with guys or play with guys that you otherwise probably would never have had the opportunity to get. To yeah, exactly. With. I mean, I'd never, I'd never really been part of a of a team compromising sort of Kiwis and Australians and that sort of thing. Set me set me in pretty good stead for coming here, to be honest, because <laughs> there, there's a fair few, <laughs> few Kiwis in our team over here. I can imagine it, it attracts a lot of international players, the Hong Kong market. Maybe we can talk about that a bit later. I just wanted to also touch a bit on, like back in your South African days, I remembered to, to just double check with you. Like I saw on your on your online profile that there was a time where you could have gone to Newport Gwent and then that never happened. Yeah. Was that injury related or was it just something that the deal just never finalized and you decided to stay in South Africa? What actually happened uh, that was, yeah, I'd essentially signed a contract with them and then, um, I'm pending medical. And then I, I tore my groin, my doctor, uh, which ended up then getting infected. So it ended up taking bloody 10, 10 or 11 months before I was actually back on the field again. Yeah. Looking back on it now, you know, I, I ended up going to, um, ended up going to the lines after that and that. As far as my professional rugby career goes, those are probably my favourite three years as a professional rugby player. So you know, I look I look back on it now and it was maybe maybe a blessing in disguise. Yeah. Okay, you also took your opportunities. It's not like 
nothing good came of it. So that I guess it's there's a positive, a silver lining. Yeah. And then another thing I wanted to just double check with you. I saw that I don't. I'm going to probably butcher this name. There was like a French side that sort of was rumored to be interested yeah. in signing you, but that was like all nonsense. Or? Okay, I should probably just give you the full rundown. So okay, there was Gwent Dragons, which which was cancelled due to injury. Uh, after that, there was Oyane, which is assume that's the one you're talking about because the name's very yes. very hard to to pronounce. Uh, that I was pretty much on the verge of signing for it was after my first year at the Lions, but I was, I was just really enjoying my time in Joburg, having been in uh, Bloemfontein before that. And with all due respect to Bloemfontein, it's a great place for many people, but <laughs> I, I just didn't really enjoy it. So I was, I was really enjoying my time in Joburg at that stage. So I, I sort of put that one on the back burner. Just before my final year, I got another contract then at Agen, which quite similarly was... I, I was all but signed, and then um, we sort of came to an agreement with the Lions to stay another year. Yeah, so there are essentially three three overseas deals that fell through in my time uh, as a professional rugby player. Obviously, two two of them were my own decision. So, like, no regrets there that you didn't take up an opportunity to play overseas? You're happy with the way that things turned out? Yeah, yeah, very much so, actually. Uh, the You know, you go to... Oyenne or Jean, it's small little French towns. They only speak French. It's it's a very different experience, and it would have, I'm sure it would have been great for what it was. But going back to sort of your time as a professional rugby player, there are times when you're incredibly stressed out because you don't actually know, you know, what what is my career, career progression here. And let's say I'm I get to 35 and I'm married and I've got two kids, and now I've got to restart a new career. What do I do? Moving to Hong Kong, starting a new career, at 29. You know, you've got a bit of a bit of leeway to, you know, sort of build a career. Whereas now I feel that I can actually like sort of get on with my life, and and your career is is gradually growing as opposed to as opposed to ending. Yeah, to be honest, very happy with the decision. And and you get that you still get that stimulation of the rugby, so you still get to play, still still enjoy that team environment. But there's just not that that pressure, that pressure to sort of make this rugby career succeed is a lot less. Yeah, so maybe we can move on to maybe the final little bits about um, completely rugby-related stuff. And you can talk about your time in Hong Kong with, with rugby. Just interesting, I looked on your club's website. I'm not sure uh, how up-to-date it is. It might have actually been the Wikipedia page, but I see there's just tons of foreigners. Obviously, um, it makes a lot of sense because Hong Kong... Is not a rugby superpower, so they need a lot of guys to come in to help supplement their club sides. Um, so what is it like being a foreigner playing rugby in Hong Kong? <laughs> being a foreigner playing rugby in Hong Kong, I would equate being a being a Brit playing rugby in the UK. It's a, it's just it's pretty much ninety percent expats. So it's yeah, I mean it's very okay. yeah. There's there's tons of South Africans, tons of Kiwis, uh, quite a few quite a few Brits, um, a few Australians. Yeah, it's a it's very much an expat community here. Essentially started, you know, it's, this was a British colony for a long, long time. And, um, and they, the Brits came over, or the like, the expats came over and they they wanted a pastime and, and rugby rugby took off, yeah. I, it's probably similar to where you're in South Korea, I don't know, but, you know, you live in a tiny little flat here. People kind of use any excuse to get out and, and get busy. So the, the rugby is really, it's a, it's, a, it's a very big deal here. Like there's a lot the community is great and there's you know there's only three teams yeah. but that's sort of just because there's not enough numbers but it's it's taken quite seriously and people and people get stuck into it yeah funnily enough my earliest memory of hong kong rugby strangely enough is i'm not sure if you ever played journalism rugby but like the playstation one version of it, <laughs> <laughs> it was like super super old school graphics literally still to this day my favorite rugby game and hong kong is like weirdly enough in in the game i think they in like the 90s they were rugby was smaller so i think yeah. they were one of the sides that was sort of contesting for world cup spots you know how they i think there's like one or two spots that are always mm, up for grabs mm. yeah well they they're busy contesting for world cup spot right now they're, they're playing in this four-team repechage okay. but it's unfortunately it's not going so well they lost their first team game two games so i think they're out of that yeah i just I think it's just interesting that in a community like Hong Kong, that rugby is still 
something that's they least taking seriously and trying to trying to do mm. do it at an international level because um, in South Korea it's basically non-existent. Yeah, well, I think essentially what happened in Hong Kong was that the um, they had the Hong Kong Sevens for so many years and it became this massive event where um, you know they pulled in so much revenue and then really have anywhere to spend it. So they they eventually started up this you know first this amateur league which was funded by the union that had made all the money from Sevens and then. And then they actually started a full-time program. Um, unfortunately, COVID, COVID put an end to all of that. But it, they, I think they had a professional program now for sort of eight years or so, a full-time professional okay. program. Yeah. And is that just but between like the three sides? No, that's no, no. So the, the professional program was for the international side. It's Hong Kong's international side. Oh, okay. And okay. then you had uh, six other teams, all sort of semi-professional, who those guys would play for. But then, um, okay. you know, when they're not training with their clubs, they'd go off and, and do their full-time stuff with Hong Kong and do all their gym work and, um, you know, in preparation to, to try and qualify for sort of various tournaments and that sort of thing. Okay. Is Hong Kong by any chance similar to countries like Japan where there are a lot of guys that come in and then qualify for citizenship and then play for the Hong Kong side, um, but they're foreign-born? Yeah, I mean, not, not citizenship because that's a... That's a pretty long process, but yes, I'd say probably close to the majority of the team are from elsewhere. Okay. So there was there was obviously the three year. It used to be a three year um, qualification rule, which I fell under, but was then out of the country for too long, so I disqualified myself. And now they've changed it to five years, which is obviously a huge challenge for you know a lot of these teams, including Japan, Hong Kong, where they've now got to have guys for another two years before they qualify. So yeah, it's, it's, it's that that change in ruling was obviously not not great news for Hong Kong. You got to incentivize the players that are coming over to stay over there for an extra two years, which can be quite a tough sell. Um, if especially if sort of rugby is the only outlet that that person has. So how how it always did work before was essentially just people came over here and worked, and there were there were sort of guys that we can collaborate like sort of amateur club rugby back home. And they, they get a job in finance and they stick around for three years and then they qualify. When the professional setup became a thing, what would happen is that guys would come over, they'd play, maybe play a year at their semi-professional club, getting sort of sorted out accommodation, a little bit of pay, and then the union say, okay, right, this guy's got a little bit of bottom, let's let's give him a full-time contract and support him because we only need him for another two years. And then sort of to your point, that's not really a thing anymore because, you you know, supporting someone for four years you know, paying someone for four years with a mind that you're only going to get value out of them at the end of that four years, it's, that's a big investment. Yeah. Did, do you think that they made that kind of ruling to specifically impact on teams like Japan and, and Hong Kong that are leaning on other countries for players? Or do you think uh, that they didn't really think that far down the line? Uh, I, I'm not sure. I, it was the, I can't remember, it's the rugby boss, the Argentinian guy. I think I think he just Pisha. Yeah, I think I think it was big big part of of his sort of mandate when he when he became the the chairman or whatever it is. He he wanted to to get rid of this rule. I, I th- to be honest, I think it was more targeted towards the European teams where you've got you know a guy like Bandiaki playing for Ireland or you know a bunch of South Africans yeah. playing playing for some of the UK teams. I think we I don't think they really cared about us. I think it was more well us in Japan. I think that was more just sort of collateral damage yeah it's i think unintended consequences of a move like that because obviously it is a thing in japan and hong kong to attract foreign players it's not it's not the competition and obviously mm. you're trying to stamp out as you say you know that mass migration of south africans and new zealanders and, and australians into the european market they basically have a, a pool of players that is huge i mean so, especially south africa south africa is a bit of a joke when it comes to talent mm. The size of the rugby union in there, but it's a bit of a. I mean, the inconsistencies with it are a bit silly because if I had a single grandmother who spent the first two years of her life in, say, England, I would be. I would qualify for England. If she, and she, if she had moved at the age of two and lived the entire life in South Africa, my parents had lived the entire life in South Africa. I did my entire life in South Africa. I still qualified to play for England. Versus some person who's actually immigrated to another country and stayed there for you know four years is now not not qualified to play for that country. I'm not really saying the latter is correct, that, as in they should be allowed to play, but the former seems a bit inconsistent. 
yeah it's it's kind of like a a massive loophole that can be exploited for certain people and then uh others are locked out yeah it is it is it's very weird how those things and it's also when you look at those kinds of things i often think about it's like it's it seems very much rule-based doesn't really seem to be based in any principles like it you know what i mean it's it's just someone made a rule and then, cool. We'll just stick to the rule, and we'll we'll follow it without really making any sense of the rule. Yeah, it's very weird. <laughs> I sort of fell victim to that. Now, I've, I've mentioned my row earlier, but what it amounted to was that I was out of the country for um, for more than uh, sixty days or something on stretch because we, you know, the row obviously took X amount of time, and then because of COVID, there was a challenge to get back, which essentially disqualified me from playing for Hong Kong. But I got here before the five-year rule kicked in, so I actually qualified in 2019. Then COVID happened, so there were no international matches, so I could never sort of like tick the box of having played. And then, you know, once you played, then you qualified forever. And then went on the row, so then then disqualified myself. And now having lived in Hong Kong for six years, having earned a salary here, having paid rent here, you know, I'm getting married to someone I met here. It's all, uh, I still am unable to play for Hong Kong because I because I was out of the country for more than 60 days during that, that six-year period. It's all just so arbitrary, eh? Yeah, it's, it's a box-ticking exercise, I guess, you, you know. It's so silly. I, I have a big concern when things come to, and I think it happens in finance as well, coming on a complete tangent, where like uh, certain companies for compliance just tick boxes rather than mm-hmm. actually worry about the big implications of what they're doing from the ethical standpoint. That's a, that's a conversation maybe for another day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wanted to just ask you, before we leave the world of sports, maybe we can talk about your row because I always find it fascinating, interesting learning about different sports and different adventures that people have had with their sporting careers or with their recreational sports. And I have had a, a Olympic rower on the podcast before. She rowed for South Africa. Um, so I learned a lot about rowing and the different terms and all the jargon and how technical the sport is. It actually blew my mind how technical rowing is. So maybe you can talk a little bit about your experience with your, with your row, maybe start to finish because I'm sure you must have had an extraordinary experience. Yeah, sure. Well, first things first is that all that all those technical things that you learn from here didn't really pertain to us. I was just a big old slug. <laughs> big old slug. <laughs> yeah, so what happened was that a mate of mine, um, a very good mate of mine who I play, uh, play rugby with, yeah, he, he had three mates that had done this event. It's called the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. So it's a... Um, okay, I know the Talisker. Yeah, so it's a it's a 3,000-mile row, row unsupported across the Atlantic. And he'd sort of had a bee in his mind about wanting to do it. We had always just sort of blown him off and be like, no ways, that sounds stupid. And then uh, one day... I don't know, he just suggested it and he got us a got us at a weak moment and he said, Right, cool, let's do it. And within a within probably half an hour we had made a WhatsApp group. We were putting plans into place, getting in touch with the organizers. Yeah, and, and and that was probably about a year and a half before the event. And then there was a massively long process of trying to find sponsors, um, trying to raise money because we, we were doing it for charity. Uh, so we actually did it for child fund. Uh, rugby, formerly Child Fund Plastic Back, which is it's a charity that uses rugby as a vehicle to sort of empower and educate um, underprivileged kids. It started out in Asia, um, which was fairly important to us, just you know, given that we all we all knew each other being in Asia. So and and it, and it's also a lot easier to raise money for a charity in the uh, that's in the same region as the as the place you're trying to raise it. They have now expanded. You know, to parts of Africa and stuff too. So it's yeah, I mean it's phenomenal, okay. phenomenal charity. We Martin, sorry to yeah. sorry to interrupt you. What I'll definitely do is maybe when we wrap up, you can give me the details because I do like to support things like this. Um, so if anyone wants to look into it and donate to it, that would be great. Yeah, as sure. well. So just give me the details when we're done. That would be awesome. That'd be very, very much appreciated. Cool. Yeah. So we we had to get all that stuff sorted out. Um, we ended up getting the boat over here right in the midst of an international shipping crisis. Our, our boat was literally was, <laughs> was literally on the water when the Suez Canal got blocked up. So that delayed things. And, and there was there's essentially a requisite that you have to do hours-wise, and I think the minimum is 120 hours on the boat. And we had to squeeze that into probably a month and a half of training. So it was like a bunch, wow. of, bunch of, you know, overnight rows and that sort of thing. 
yeah, so we, we managed to tick all those boxes. Uh, got a sponsorship from Cathay Pacific, which is the Air, Hong Kong airline here, um, the cargo division. They, they, and our team ended up being called Cathay Pacific Cargo. Uh, East Rose West okay. was the, was the other part of the name. Yeah, and they, they, they actually flew our boat over to the start line, which was, which was huge because, uh, I think shipping prices had gone up about sort of six or seven folds since, since we had initially shipped it over. So it blown all our budgets out of the water. So we're very fortunate for that to happen. And then sort of into the race, yeah, it started mid, mid December and we finished, um, mid January. And then sort of to give a... Where did you guys start? So we started in the Canary Islands, um, one of the small Canary Islands called Lagomera. And um, we finished up in Antigua in the in the Caribbean. Essentially what it is is that you row, we would row for about two hours, 20, two hours and 20 minutes. And then you have about an hour and 40 off. And you just basically, we just basically did that throughout. So you end up rowing 14 hours a day and then resting for 10 hours a day. And then you've you've got all your sort of dehydrated food and and ration packs and that that you that you you need to eat. So we were eating sort of in excess of six thousand calories a day, and still got off the boat losing a bunch of weight. I mean, I was down ten. Other uh, guys sort of between twelve, thirteen. Wanted to ask you about that because I've watched a, a podcast about a guy. He was meant to set off. Oof, it must be three, four years ago now. I can't find out what ever happened to him. So. He was going to do this, but a solo. Yeah. And he, the first time he tried, he had complications quite early on and he had to abort. I can't find out what happened to him, but I remember him saying the big challenges were raising money. It was really, really mm. expensive to get the vessel and to get the food and all that stuff. Um, so that took him a long time. And then he spoke about sort of his preparation leading up to the row. Um, he'd put on so much weight because he knew when he was on the ocean by himself, he would be dropping weight consistently across the row. So did you guys take all that into account as well? Did you guys do a, a bulking up before going? Yeah, I guess sort of to get it to the sports science around it, it's not, there's sort of two schools of thought with it. So um, some people say, right, add a bunch of weight because you're going to lose it all and give yourself a little bit of a buffer. On the other side of, of thinking, and this is what we did, it was actually to get on pretty lean and, and efficient because you, you know, you firstly, you, you want to be flexible. You don't want to break down. So that's, you know, you want to avoid injuries, but the boat goes faster, the lighter it is. And if you, you know, if you're each carrying an extra sort of 10 to 50 kilograms, that's, that's a bunch of weight on the boat. That's, that's an extra sort of 45 to yeah. 50 kilograms on the boat. And what hap- what ends up happening is that those guys just invariably lose, you know, if you put on 20 kilograms of excess weight, what happens, you just invariably lose, you know, 25, Whereas with us, not having put on that 20, we lose 10. So we end up, you know, five kilograms less than what we otherwise would have been. But, you know, I don't think it's great for you to be losing 25 kilograms in a month. Yeah, so we we went the other school of thought. And it does seem to be moving towards that direction. The, the organizers okay. are, are, seem to be following that 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 school of thought. The, the interesting thing about the race is that it's, it's such a new sport. It's not re- It's not, you know, it's not really even a real sport right now. So all this, the sports science side of it is, is very new and it's, you know, there's a bunch of, te- there's a bunch of experiments going on and, and trying to figure out like what works best. Um, it does make it quite interesting because the things aren't sort of yeah. optimized just yet. So you, your sort of individual strategy leading up to and on the race has a bigger, big effect on, on how you do. On the outcome. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's super, super fascinating. Maybe we can chat a bit about. I'd love to know if you if you know of anyone I could speak to that knows a bit more on the sports science side who's maybe trying to figure out strategies and, and different things about maybe a potential future guest because that would be interesting. Cool. Um, yeah. Because when I learned personal training, it's all like science-based mm. and bodybuilding and personal training is also very interesting because a lot of the time, the research that's done isn't really – the cohorts that they use aren't really – the same as what the actual people are in the gym for example they often use like untrained individuals Mm. so i'm sure you experienced it the first time you go into gym is a very different growth experience and growth phase than to when you are an advanced gym goer um trying to now find ways and strategies to build muscle when you kind of plateauing in terms of your growth and things like that so 
yeah, it's also very cutting edge. It's very difficult to research specifically for bodybuilders because there aren't really that yeah, many guys yeah. that are entering into studies. Yeah, well, that's, I guess that's it. And they face a similar problem. They just don't really have the sample size to, 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 yeah. to you know, conduct effective tests. Yeah. And funny, <laughs> I, I might as well bring it up now because I don't know how the memory stayed with me, but back in, when was it, 2005, you were training, correct me if I'm wrong, you were training at the Virgin Active in Constantia yeah. circa 2005, yeah, right? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. I had gone on exchange. Um, I'd gone to the Isle of Man, <laughs> and I'd come back, and it was that Christmas holiday, obviously, before going back to school. So I was grade 10, you would have been grade 11, going into matric, so finally mm-hmm. in school. And I remember coming back and seeing you in the gym, and I was like, holy shit, because <laughs> you'd, you'd stacked on quite a bit of size. Yeah, there's a big old growth, um, big old growth spec from the ages of 17 to 18. I think I put on 10 kilograms from grade 11 to grade 12. I'd, I'd end up losing half of that during the rugby season. I mean, I was, I was doing zero cardio. I was just going to the gym and doing chest and arms <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and, eat, and eating a bunch. So, um, you know, okay. when, you, when, you, when you're that age, you're just happy to get in the gym and not really think about anything scientific or functional it's just doing heavy weights and eating a bunch yeah so i stacked on a whole bunch that that over that period (laughs) had you grown vertically already had you finished your vertical growth spurt and then you went like you grew outwards or was it a bit of both i mean there was definitely like a early on the ratio of height to weight was definitely more skewed towards getting taller but then yeah I, i sort of filled out fall out towards the end of high school okay, yeah because the reason i ask is i think in my mind what made it quite noticeable quite stark is that you'd always been tall but you'd kind of been tall and skinny so i think the fact that suddenly you were putting on that outward mass i think it made it quite uh, quite noticeable because being tall you're already kind of stuck out and then being tall and yeah. big it's you know the, the double the, the combo effect <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, i feel a lot of that in hong kong <laughs> Double the size, double the size of everyone. Yeah, is 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 that sort of trope slash stereotype true of Hong Kong people? Are they generally shorter? Yeah, I think that's that's probably that's probably true of most Asian populations around the world. Okay. It's on on average. I mean, I think that's just there's data to support that. That's not even yeah. really an opinion. Yeah. Um, we end up being a, and especially South Africans, yeah. you know, Dutch blood. Uh, <laughs> we end up being quite a lot taller than. Taller than the rest. It's really, it's a, it's super interesting in Korea, um, because when I was in South Africa, uh, leaving here, it's leaving for here. Everyone said, "Oh, don't worry," because I'm. Those of you who don't know, I'm short for for a male. I'm like, I'm not even, I'm not even 170 centimeters. I'm just shy of 170. So everyone's like, "Oh, you'll be sort of tall in Korea." Surprisingly, the younger generation here is probably no different to South Africa, if not taller. And I honestly think, um, obviously, Korea's history. In the last 50 years, they've gone through a massive economic boom. And I think nutrition mm. and food here is, has gotten so much better so quickly mm. that it was, I think, a limitation of their growth was to do with nutrition. Because um, you can see the difference between you'll get grandparents standing next to their kids and there's like a slight height difference. And then you get the grandkids standing next to grandparents and there's a huge height difference. Um, so it's really interesting mm. t- to see. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's also. It, it might also just be from the area of China that South Koreans come from, because there um, there are parts of China where you have quite a lot of tall people. It's yeah, it's it's quite sort of regional yeah. on that. Although I suppose that doesn't really explain the the generational gap. Yeah, yeah, there's there's like generational gaps within families where the genetics are the same. So it's yeah, it's very interesting. It might just be something that you notice, and then you kind of, I'm like biased towards seeing it. It might not actually be um, something significant in the data, but it's really interesting because I don't feel as if I'm tall person in Korea. I feel like I'm pretty much average. Some of my students are taller than me, mm. um, and they are the equivalent of like grade tens. Okay. So, yeah, oh. and that's boys and girls. So it's not just like the guys or the girls. Sorry, yo, where were we? We were somewhere in Antigua, and then we somehow ended up back in in Asia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, we're talking about weight loss and things like that. Um, out of interest. Were there any moments out there where it's like was really dangerous, or did you guys have a mostly a smooth sail? Look, you're in the middle of the ocean, so there's like it's never, it's very seldomly 
flat. There were there were days, especially early on, where it was actually like a pond. It was pretty eerie, actually. It felt it felt like you were just on a flat, flat pond. And those days, in many ways, are worse. Part of the reason you take that route is because you're um, you're following the trade winds, you know, so from from east to west. And if you're not getting any assistance from the wind, assistance from the winds, it makes life a lot harder. Any sort of movement that the boat makes is is purely sort of from your your own rowing, which makes life tough. Uh, we did have we had, did have a few a few moments, you know, with rough seas where we almost capsized. One thing um, that you have to be super super strict on is being strapped onto the boats at all times, and that's basically because if you fall off, you're just dead. When the wind is actually sort of favoring you and you're going in one direction to turn the boat around is physically impossible. You can't, you like, you won't be able to row against row against the current. So if you don't, if you're not strapped in and you fall over the edge, um, you know, you'll see your, your mate disappear into the distance and that'll be the last you'll see of them. Cause it's just, it's impossible to do. Is, is there no like support or rescue crews that you can radio in that situation? Or is it because it, like the race is so vast and big, it's impossible to? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the closest, you know, you can. There'll be times when the closest boat next to you will be three hundred miles away. Jeez. You know, there's okay. It's the the, the ocean's pretty va- pretty vast. <laughs> but you're not gonna. <laughs> it's it's not a it's not a question of right right my mates my mates falling off the water uh, falling off the boats and and let's ready in and get him get him some help. Okay. Like they'll they'll be there in three days if you're lucky. Okay. So like nothing like. You on your gear, you're tagged with a GPS device, nothing like that. Yeah, so there is that. Firstly, the boat's got um, GPS, which also then equipped with um, distress beacons. So if they get wet, they just automatically they automatically trigger. And on your life jackets, again, you've got these these distress little miniature distress beacons that go off. Okay. To be honest, that's all just kind of fluff. Okay. Like. I did, as I said, if you fall off and you're not strapped in, the the, the most important uh, safety kit by miles is just your strap okay. to stay on to stay on the boat. Because if you if you fall off, you just you're probably just dead. Yeah. Okay, that's quite intense. I never really thought about it like that, but it makes makes 100 sense because, as you're saying, you know, you're going. There's no way you're turning around and going back against the the, the a trade wind. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. That's wild. Exactly. Um. So for you guys, no, no crazy crazy incidents. Nothing, nothing like that. No, we. I mean, there were. It's just, it's just generally a very tough and difficult experience. So you know, you have things like your, your water maker, which is that it uses reverse osmosis yep. to create water from from salt water. You know, that will go on the blink a bit, and then you got to like repair it. And there'll be things, you know, like I'll, <laughs> we got we got hit by a wave once, and one of the one of the gates for the oars bent in like some skew way, and it's impo- it's impossible to fix. So then, sort of rowing a bit awkwardly okay. for the for the remainder of the row, which obviously, when you're taking, I think I think the the stat is you you do about a million strokes, and you know if you're doing if you do if you're doing a million strokes with an oar that's slightly off, it's going to start you know affecting your your balance and your yeah you know your lower back's going to start playing up. Yeah. And that sort of Everything thing. kind of gets exaggerated just because of volume. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly that's exactly it. It's one of those things where. I've always thought like, oh, that's such a epic challenge to put yourself through. When people talk about the experiences, I'm, I just can't imagine how hectic it is to, to do something like that. And also, I'm not particularly fond of of the oceans. <laughs> um, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's I, I actually, I think a day or two after I finished, I sort of put it all down into words how I felt about it. Just because I thought, you know, with the passage of time, you'd sort of forget or, or you'd start sort of seeing it with forget the term whatever but like i think it's a lot lot less hard than it was ah uh, like with rose tinted uh, glasses yeah that's 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 yes, the phrase that's i was the one. for thank you very much <laughs> uh, yeah I, I, I mean, essentially what i wrote was that it was not it was not an enjoyable experience like i'm happy i did it but it was not fun or enjoyable at all it was grueling and super hard and you know once you once you're done with it once sort of the you, you get time to appreciate. You really, you really do, you know, become appreciative of, of sort of what you've done, and quite proud of it. But it's at the time, oh, it was, it was very difficult. I can it imagine a, it was a challenge. Yeah. And is it your number one most 
challenging thing you've done in terms of physical activity? Or is there anything that comes close to that? I would definitely say so. Just because it's so long and it's just relentless. You know, a reg- I've had harder days at rugby training. But the thing about that is then you go home and you, you know, you make yourself a nice warm meal and you go and get eight hours of sleep. And then the next day is not as hard or, you know, it's the weekend. Or, whereas with this, it's literally two hours, 20 on. I've now got an hour and 40 until my next shift starts. And in that time, I've got to eat. I've got to clean myself. And I need to try and get some sort of amount of sleep, whether it be an hour or, you know, 45 minutes. And then your alarm goes off and you're like, oh, I'm going to do this again. <laughs> and that happens six times a day. And with those six rotations, are you guys all doing it together as a group, like rowing together and then resting together, or do you, do you alternate? No, so the, boat, the boat's always moving forward. So we'll, um, how it works, you'd row the first hour with your one teammate, with the one guy on the boat, and you'd row 20 minutes by yourself, and then the next hour with your other teammate. And that's, yeah, that would be, that would be our routine. That 20 minutes by yourself sort of in the middle of your shift is awful. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, you know, three o'clock in the morning by yourself, <laughs> yeah, middle of the ocean. It's very strange, very strange feeling. And the unbalanced sleep schedule, was it not for that long period of time? Does it not get to you mentally? Does it not like, don't you find yourself like tweaking out for lack of sleep? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely that you, you know, firstly, you're obviously moody, you just, you're not sleeping. And there's that initial adjustment period. You never get, you never get fully used to it. You're always pretty tired, especially when it comes to the evenings, you're super, super tired. But that early sort of week or two is just, you know, getting, starting to adjust to that schedule is very, very difficult. A lot of people hallucinate. I sort of slightly hallucinated on the one night, but it's quite common that people hallucinate. And then the other stories of people sort of just falling asleep on the oars involuntarily. Yeah. It's, and then, and then obviously you, you know, you just snap at each other because like small yeah. things will just annoy you when you're, when you're that tired. You sleep deprived. Yeah. That, that, that was probably for me was the, was the hardest aspect of the whole thing. It's just the lack of sleep. Okay. No, never getting a proper rest. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I can imagine that's rough. I worked, I mean, I've never done anything as extreme as that, but I worked night shift um, when I was still in Cape town. And I had a similar experience with involuntary sleeping, but only in the beginning when I first got, got into night shift, I would be driving home and then I would, there was literally one particular part of the, of the drive home. I would be leaving the, I think the M5 and going on the off ramp at, and at the robot, um, sort of in, in Rondebosch, getting like back onto mm. that Milner yeah. road that area yeah and at that red light because i could take a break pull, pull up my handbrake there were one or two times where i would literally just drop off and then with the robot would go green and obviously me not moving someone would hoot and i'd wake up and i'd be like where geez, where the hell am i Oof. it was rough because we uh, the shift Feels was 10. pretty unsafe <laughs> so unsafe um the, the shift was like a 10 o'clock till the six in the morning um yeah, yeah. and I, I so after doing that a couple of times i yeah, like then it was like windows down, music playing, trying to do find ways to do it, but it only lasted sort of the first like month and a half. Um, but we did like rotations; we weren't only on night shift, but you'd go mm. from like a day shift to a night shift, and it was it was pretty pretty grueling. Um, so I can understand yeah. like that. What you experienced is an extreme extreme version of that. So like getting grumpy and snapping at people. I found myself doing that even just like with three days of night shift, where you're not sleeping properly. The the, the last thing that i kind of wanted to maybe wrap up with you have been really generous with your time we're already like an hour in um, i want nice. to close things off asking you firstly about rugby and the rowing and then maybe about rugby rowing and work and i'll sort of explain what i mean um with the rugby and rowing did you find anything from having a sports background that would have benefited someone to do something like a row you know is there anything both physically or intangibles, like the mental mindsets you'd need to get something like that done. Did you find any anything that was transferable over into rowing that you learned as a rugby player? Yeah, I mean there definitely is. We, you know, we all three of us had played together in in the same rugby team, and we had all done sports you know, fairly competitively. Rob, one of my teammates, was in the army, 
So he had sort of had that side of things, but then he also captained the Army rugby team, so the UK Army rugby team. Um, my other mate Matt also played a fair bit of rugby in, in his time. So you know the physical stuff; it is what it is. You you know we're all fairly athletic guys, which is which obviously helps. But I think just uh, learning to be having been part of a team environment and being sort of under the gun with each other or with other people and understanding that, you know, times will get rough and like the sort of team side of things just needs to take precedence and you just need to sort of bite your tongue at times and, and get on with it. Um, I think that, that, that did play a very big role. Um, things that didn't transfer so well were all the niggly injuries that we had from rugby. <laughs> we, uh, we, we, uh, we had our, our coach here in Hong Kong, his name's Dave, runs a gym here and he's, they're, they're quite scientific about their approach and they, and that, you know, they, they test your flexibility and, and check your injuries and all that sort of thing. And it was just like a shopping list of injuries that we, <laughs> that we had and our flexibility was awful. So we, we, we basically spent our first sort of six months with him just trying to get flexible, trying to work okay. through those old like niggly injuries. And how did you do that? Was it like range of motion stuff? Yeah, and it's you know it's like functional type training, like doing, you know, range of motion, um, and then and then just sorting out the little you know if you've got a knee injury, doing a bit of proprioception work and that sort of stuff, just strengthening small muscles, making sure your your hips end up getting very tight from rowing, and um, so a lot of sort of like hip stretching. Okay. Um, so they like close up from the just from the the sitting. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's just you know you you always cramped up. I, I, it's it's just a very strange world on the boat. I, you know, like I, I'd never spent a month of my life not standing. Like you don't stand up for, you don't walk or stand up for a month. Oh, that's weird. Like I've never done that. It's just very strange, and and your body's not really suited to it. So I, I think it's just getting your body ready for ready for that. Oh, that's interesting. It's yeah, it, it's part of the the unnatural part of of the row that you kind of yeah maybe you don't really think about as much until you halfway in and you realize I haven't stood up for fifteen days. <laughs> yeah. no, your 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 calves just shrink. It takes it's bizarre. It takes a week and you have to have no more calves left. The only thing I can have relative experience of that is obviously after a surgery, after my knee ops. Um, mm. Just I. I flabbergasted how quickly I lost muscle mass in my leg just from having it in a brace and not using it. It's amazing how quickly the muscle goes away and it takes forever for, for you to get it back. <laughs> yeah. And then the last the last sort of thing that I also mentioned there was about sort of sports and, and the after sports life that you have because interestingly enough, a few people have said it's been particularly difficult to adjust like back into – uh, I don't know. I don't even know what to call it. I don't like saying normal life because it's not like sports is abnormal. Um, but sort of a life after sports was it a challenge for you to to transition, or um, how did you find that whole experience? And are there things or strategies that you that you implemented that that you consciously did, maybe to give advice to those people that would go through something similar to what you went through that they could use in their own in their own experience. <laughs> Well, firstly, I think you should acknowledge that sport is a bit abnormal. You know, doing, doing sport for a living is, it is weird. Like you finish, you do it, you do it, you start it when you're 20 and you finish when you're 35. So it is a bit strange. And that's kind of, that's kind of where the whole challenge arises from is that, you know, you, you, you need to try to figure out after that. I've, to be honest, I, I think I had a fairly soft landing. So I moved, I moved over here. Essentially, the rugby the rugby club sorted me out for about a year with accommodation and a little bit of a salary. But you know, being the sort of quite broad expat community within the rugby scene, I met I met quite a lot of people here. So it was a good it was a good way to network and met my my current the, the CEO of our company who owns the company. I met him through through rugby. Got a you know a pretty basic job at the company that I'm working at now, and because he sort of had an understanding of where I was coming from. It's not like I was put on like a big old salary, but because I was, you know, came came here with the rugby buffering up my salary on the other side and then earning a little bit through the company, I was able to then gradually grow the career organically, which took, took a bunch of pressure off. 
I think, you know, if I'd, if I'd come over here and, and looked for a role, having had, you know, with a wife and two kids or something, that it would have been a very different story. So I was, I was very fortunate in that regard. And um, I, yeah, I've actually quite enjoyed the process, to be honest. I, okay. I, being able to apply my mind in a different way, being able to sort of structure my days in a different way, because um, we train, now we train, our training starts at sort of 8 p.m. at night. So, you know, you have a full work day and then you go and blow up some, you use regularly blow up some steam, which is like, it's That's a very nice. different, it's a very different uh, stimulus to before when I was, you know, I was playing rugby all day and then you get to the day and you bug it and you, you've been over playing rugby. Whereas this, I'm like looking forward to it, you know, I get to blow up a bit of steam after a, after a long work day. Um, okay. Yeah. And then as far as advice goes, I think studying is, is, you know, if if you don't know, it's it's hard to know what you're gonna do, especially you know when you're in your when you're in your early twenties. But a decision you can make is just to study. You know, study yeah. something. I I think when I was at the Lions, uh, I don't know if it's my final year or the year before, but there, we were a squad of forty or fifty, and I think there were probably four or five of us that actually had university degrees. Wow. And you know, you do have the time. Like if you if you're a professor who play, you do have the time. You get you get entire days off during the week and it's obviously a bit of a sacrifice because in some days you're not going to be able to play golf on your Wednesday um, <laughs> when all your other teammates are but you know if you knuckle down and study and you get it done in five years or whatever or three, three, three to five years you can take long if you want it's quite easy to come out of the back of your career with a degree and something okay. to fall, fall back on just make yourself a little bit more employable I guess yeah yeah, that's a great a great point. In your specific situation, did you study uh, like distance learning, or did you go to into the institute every day? Uh, no, I so I started at UCT. I was doing business science there. I did about a year and a half, and then got contracted um, at Rickworth. So then I just transferred over to uh, Unis and did a BCom. Okay. Pretty pretty basic. Haven't done any sort of postgrad or anything like that. Uh, okay. That might that might be on the cards sometime in my future, but, but not right now. Okay, epic. And then normally my final, final question, sorry to keep you on for a bit longer, is no worries. people who are prospective sports people, young people or people looking to start a career in sports, do you have any sort of principles or um, ideas for them to, ha- to make a success out of their career, like things that you would say to like a younger version of yourself maybe to – advice you'd give on how to like make the most out of your sports career? Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of an old cliche, but I think just work hard. It's, it's, it's quite easy to, especially, and it sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about when you're doing it as a job, it does feel like a little bit of a mission at times. But, you know, it, when you're skipping a gym session because you just feel a bit buggered and you make an excuse, it does, it's, it's all these marginal gains. And I only sort of figured that out towards the end of my career when I, and I started playing a lot better rugby because of it. Is that, you know, these, those small little extra sessions you do, if Sarah, I'm feeling buggered, I want to cancel my session. Well, no, I'd rather just do like a lighter session or that type of thing. Those little bits of effort, those little marginal bits of effort, they have such a huge effect by the, by the time you, you know, you're sort of in the throes of your career. And it teaches good habits, you know. Yeah. It's, you know, you, you come out the other end of your career and you've actually just got a good work ethic by the end of it. Yeah, that's great. That reminds me of, I'm not sure if you've read that book, Atomic Habits by James Clear. I haven't. No. Um, he talks about like the British cycling team right in the beginning of the book and how basically there were nobodies in cycling and then through marginal gains in just looking at every single aspect of being a, a cyclist, looking at all like equipment, gear that they wear, the way that they train, the way that they, even the way that they sleep and all that stuff, just by tweaking everything by 1%, it's like a huge, huge gain on the back end. Mm. And that's basically how they did it. And then they went from being nobodies in cycling to being, to suddenly Bradley Wiggins winning the Tour de France, then Chris Froome taking over from him, and then all these gold medals at the Beijing and London Olympics, all just from a process of those marginal improvements over time. And that's exactly mm. basically what you're saying is just squeezing out that extra little bit of effort and watching it compound. Yeah. You know, I haven't read the book, but I've heard that, I've heard that story many times about the British cycle. 
Epic. Thank you so much, Martin. I really, really appreciate you giving up your afternoon. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, not a problem. Thanks for having me. To those of you who made it all the way to the end, I sincerely appreciate your support. I hope that you have a better understanding of how the lessons you learn in sport can help you in other situations in life. I know that I sometimes forget some of the life lessons that I learned from playing competitive high school sports. As Martin explained today, you learn how to deal with challenges with a certain mindset if you've encountered difficulty in sports. Grit and persistence can become a habit. If you haven't already, please join me on Facebook. I'm growing a community there where I will engage with you and answer any queries. I'm also looking for any suggestions for future guests and you can leave your recommendations there. I've added a link in the show notes. A belated Merry Christmas to everyone. I hope you've had a good festive season and a happy new year. Until next time, keep well.